we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. A few weeks ago, we got a demonstration of Google's Everyday Robots project, and it was really cool. So we invited the folks at Google to come on and tell us about it, about robotics, and about the intersection between robotics and artificial intelligence. Today, we have Kate Weber, who's the Interim Global Lead for Emerging Tech Policy at Google. Previous to that, she worked at State. With Kate is Vincent Manouk, Distinguished Scientist and Senior Director of Robots at Google. He's done a ton of work on this and on AI. So it's a good conversation that covers a lot of ground. Well, thank you for joining us today. And this is a topic that, as I think we've discussed, there's probably more than we can cover in one podcast, but we can see how much we can cover. Let's, let's start out by having you both tell us about the project. Tell us about what you're doing with uh, Everyday Robots. Yes. So my name is Vincent Vanouk. I lead robotics research at Google. I'm a AI and machine learning researcher at heart, and I've been trying to figure out how to bring the world of modern machine learning into robotics and understand what the most recent advances in AI can bring to the picture in the context of robotics. And it turns out quite a lot. The foundations of robotics have really started in industrial robotics, where you have environments that are very constrained. Uh, you have uh, very fixed repetitive tasks that you have to do, and you can optimize for them very easily. More recently, the a lot of the... Um, the newer applications exist in places like warehouses where the environment is a little bit more complex, but it's still a professional environment is somewhat constrained and there is a limited variability. But really the, the real sort of opportunity for, for robotics, as I see it, is really to bring robots into the real world where the environment has no constraints whatsoever and they, you need to basically figure out how a robot can understand its context, operate safely in that context and really sort of uh, be able to execute on any sort of task possible. And that's that's the grand challenge. That's where you know robotics could really bring something new and, and unique to the table and to the world. But as of today, we don't know how to do that. We don't have really all the recipe to enable robots to operate in the real world. So our hypothesis has been that machine learning, because it's all about generalization, it's about perception, it's about understanding, as a as a really strong. Uh, uh, thing that it can bring to bear to that problem. And we've been studying that problem for a number of years now. Great. Maybe you can briefly tell us what Palm Say Can is, because I think that really, one of the things I think is interesting is natural language processing, which was we all want to be able to just talk to the machine and have it, have it do something. So yes. So 
Time Seiken is an algorithm that we've developed that leverages basically the the latest class of very large language models, which um, have been really become uh, very popularized lately through ChatGPT and uh, a lot of the other. Uh, efforts that have come to um, be really publicized around large language models mm. and their power to really bring, you know, create, be, be, become, be very creative, generate text that makes sense and um, be able to have conversation with people in a, in a very natural way and in a way that is very sensical, if you will. The, the, the challenge that is very apparent when you interact with those language models is that they're not grounded. They don't have a sense of the real world. So they're not connected to reality, if you will, in, in a very close way. They're trained on lots and lots of internet data. And so they have some general vague notions of common sense. Uh, they will probably understand that, you know, it's more likely that you will put a cup on a table rather than a table on a cup. Right? This kind of common sense understanding is actually a, a deep problem in AI because prior to those models, we didn't really have a good way of doing common sense understanding. So we're trying to figure out how do we bring this common sense understanding to robotics while at the same time bringing grounding to the language models. So making sure that the language models can understand the world and interact with the world in a way that makes sense for the context they're in. And so the SAYCAN uh, algorithm that we've developed does exactly that. You have a language model that proposes ways of doing things. So if you ask it, please, I'm thirsty, uh, please, I'd like you to make me a coffee. The language model has lots of ideas about how it could make you a coffee. It could say, you know, go to the nearby Starbucks. And that's not necessarily the very useful way of formulating the problem, but it's a plausible way. Or it can say, you know, oh, go to the kitchen. And the second algorithm, basically the robot itself has a notion of what it can or cannot do. What uh, we call that affordances, what its affordances are. And so we match up basically the robot's affordances with what the language model proposes and say, hey, you know, going to a Starbucks is probably not within the range of my capabilities, but going to the kitchen nearby, that's something I can do. And so the robot will navigate to the nearby kitchen and as you know, we'll ask the language model, okay, now I'm in the kitchen, what do I do next? And through this dialogue between what the robot knows it can do and the language model, you basically create a plan for how is the robot going to go about making you a coffee. And this kind of grounding and, 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 and turning natural language into a very concrete plan is turns out to be very, very powerful. It's very, uh, it, it's a very nice way of framing the robotics problem for robots that operate in, in real world environments. And we're very excited about pursuing these kinds of directions uh, further. This is a little, uh, it's probably a, a, an antique question, but is processing power a meaningful concept here? Do you do it all in the cloud? Is it onboard processing? 
I mean, what, oh, what do you look It at? is a very, very salient problem. Those models, the very large language models, take a lot of compute even to run in, um, in, in any meaningful way. So we do run it in the cloud. And even in the cloud, it's uh, relatively slow. And one of the big challenges that the whole industry is facing right now is how do we make running those models efficient? How do we make them, how can we make them sustainable and run faster and open up the range of applications that they can be applied to as a result? Where do you get your data for this? I mean, you said you mentioned the internet data. Is it? Scraping, publicly available, synthetic. I mean, what? What are the data sources? The, the, the data sources are largely the web. There is a huge wealth of data on the web. That is that sounds very mundane data. It's you know people's conversations on public forums, it's web pages, it's Wikipedia and things like this. But buried in that data are a lot of knowledge about the world at large. The fact that you know a chair is a thing you can sit on, that a bookshelf is a place where you put books. Like those very little things that we all take for granted, a computer that wants to reason about the real world has to learn about them. And the web is a fantastic source of uh, very detailed information about what constitutes the human world at large. Um, and so that's most of the, that's where the data largely comes from and helps inform those kinds of uh, reasoning abilities uh, that we can then uh, apply to all sorts of things, including robotics. So we have to say it because it's so popular right now, but where would chat GTP compare with all this or fit in with all this? Because most people have probably used it by now. Yeah, it's one of the steps along this journey of creating very large language models. They're, they're, you know, Google has been working in on large language models as well on on its own and has a similar set of models. The one specific one that we use in this work is called Palm, the Pathways mm -hmm. Language Model, and the it's also at a similar scale and and comparable in its uh, in its capabilities. All of those models are really a step along the journey. You can imagine that as we discover new ways of massaging the data, new ways of deploying it, more efficient ways of doing things, those models will get better, will get more grounded, will have a better reasoning capabilities. So we're also kind of working on this problem as, you know, in, in a way looking at a future in which those models will also uh, get better over time. How complicated is the task because the device not only has to understand what you're doing, it has to choose sort of a menu of options on how to respond. And then it also has to figure out how to navigate if it's going to be mobile, which I think is the difference between a lot of the industrial applications you're talking about. So what are the what's the sort of hierarchy of tasks that you think about for this? There is a, a number of tasks. Uh, navigation is one of them. And navigating, for example, from point A to point B is relatively well understood as a problem in the industry and 
something that can be tackled in, in various ways. Uh, navigating from point A to an object that you may not exactly know where it is or uh, that might not be within your field of view, that's, that's another challenge. Navigating in a way that is uh, respectful of the environment, including the people that are walking around and that is compatible with human presence on the same floor as the robot is, is actually a very interesting uh, challenge and question that is, uh, that is still something that uh, there is active research going on, making sure that the, the social aspects of navigation are compatible with robots that uh, work in human-centered environments is, is, is an important one. The planning of the task is another aspect of the problem that is complex and that is still a very active area of study. The hardest part in all this remains just the manipulation of objects mm -hmm. and how to interact with the environment in a way that is safe, that is reliable. Interacting with objects in very structured environments like industrial spaces is relatively well understood. Doing that in a complete generality of your own home or an office environment is, um, is actually quite challenging uh, still to date. Do you have a mental image of what you'd ultimately like this to look like? I mean, it's not going to be gigantor or something like that, but what do you have that sort of mental image in your head about, or do you think more incrementally? My mental image is really, I, I ultimately would love those robots to be sort of extensions of your own human capabilities, right? So a, you, instead of having to do the work yourself physically, in the case where you have some difficulties with your own physicality, like you have some disability or you're temporarily injured. I happen to have a frozen shoulder right now, which really limits the kind of things that I can do. I would love to have a robot uh, driving around me with its own arm, being able to complement the limits of my own physical faculties. And so the the, the, the ultimate goal for me would be to find a way of bringing robots into the real world as tools that people can leverage in their daily lives and support uh, greater mobility, greater independence, and being able to uh, empower people in a way that they not, can't always be empowered through their own devices. How close? Are we to that, do you think? What's the state of robotics now? I mean, people talk a lot about it, but... I, I think it's still a very difficult problem to solve. And I don't think we're honestly really close. There are aspects of this that we are close. Uh, I think the problems of, for example, navigating around in any sort of environment, Yes, there's still a lot of research going on in this space, but if it, if the problem definition is about not bumping into things and not bumping into people and not connecting with the chairs and the furniture around, that's something that's somewhat tractable. The really hard part is when you actually want to connect with the world and when you want to touch objects and you want to uh, be able to manipulate them, making that connection is really something that has 
implies all sorts of new challenges, uh, safety, uh, really a deep understanding of the functional aspects of, you know, if you're grabbing a cup, you don't want to be tilting it over and spill the liquids. Um, you can push an object on a table all the way to the edge of the table, but not more. Like those kinds of little details that you have to reason about in terms of safety and functionality makes this problem really, really complex. And so we've been taking the hypothesis that solving that problem by just programming it into robots is not going to be tractable. And so that's why we're focusing on learning and yeah. uh, trying to teach robots uh, about how those things can be done by taking examples from humans and uh, trying to basically uh, distill that knowledge into their own capabilities. Yeah, that actually was going to be my next question because you have a quote somewhere, I don't have any idea where, about your learning rather than programming uh, as a way to think about this. And originally when I thought about AI, it was like big blocks of, of, of programming that would be routines and subroutines that the, the, there'd be some way for the, the device to choose. You're actually talking about not having pre-positioned code, not having pre-positioned program. You're talking about the, the device learning from itself. What, well, how is that going to work? Yeah, it's been kind of common journey of AI where for any sort of complex task that uh, people have tried to apply AI to, very often they try to really program their way through the problem. Mm-hmm. And by creating ontologies, uh, bringing symbolic representations to bear and, and trying to create uh, heavily engineered systems with the hope that eventually they would really sort of be able to, you know, with enough complexity, uh, we would be able to solve all the problems in the world with that. And the story of AI over the last 20 years has been that the more we've removed from that programming and the more we move towards scalable data approaches, the better we were doing. So in computer vision, we a lot of the machinery that was initially developed for computer vision got put aside and now it's all one big neural network that is not particularly complicated, not particularly difficult to program, but trained on a lot of data and all its interestingness comes from the data, not from the architecture or from the the program. And that's been repeated in computer vision, in speech recognition, machine translation, any sort of high level tasks that we've seen data and focusing on data scalable approaches as trumps programming as a paradigm for success. And I, I do think that we'll see the same transition happen in robotics, because if anything, robotics is even more complex than any of those domains, um, because it, the physical world is really hard. And uh, as if you're just moving bits around, there is, you know, it can be very complicated, but at least you're in a, in a closed system that doesn't have all the complexities that the real world really brings to bear to, to the problem of robotics. If you're going to this teaching approach that where the device learns on its own and the robot learns on its own, does that expand the need for guiding principles or norms or rules that uh, the, the machine operates within the framework of those rules? 
Is that you're putting more weight on that, aren't you? So you, you still have to be input, but it would be principles rather than programming. Yes, that is exactly the case. One of the challenges is that because we're training those models and, and, and we're teaching them, um, you know, the model will absorb uh, all that data and make inferences about that data. But there is not, within the models, there is not necessarily all the constraints that you would want the mm -hmm. robot or the agent to follow in general, right? So safety constraints do not come for free within that paradigm. And it's something that you have to attach to the system and make sure that you know the robot never learns to do something unsafe. The lever robot never learns to commit to an action that it cannot physically do. And all those, the, this, yeah. this uh, boxing of what the robot can do within the constraints of its safety parameters, the capabilities of its own physical embodiment are all things that we need to inject into that robot and be very deliberate about and say, okay, this is what do we want the robot to be capable of doing or not? And that puts a lot more emphasis on research on safety. And that's also one of the big avenues that we're pursuing is how do we reason about safety in a context where the robot is really trained from data and not programmed. Mm -hmm. And so if you looked at the NIS AI risk management framework at all, yes. what do you think? It's as a it's 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 a it's it's a helpful framework in sort of defining how to reason about safety. The challenge then is how do you actually implement things within, you know, this is a it's a very descriptive framework. The details of actually implementing those kinds of uh, guidelines and safety mechanisms is the hard part, is really where the rubber meets the road. And the EU, I think, is coming up with their de facto global standards for AI. Are we in a regulatory race here, or is it? Are they compatible? I mean, what's this is getting close to what Kate gets interested. In. I think. Yeah. I don't know, Vincent. If you, I, I can jump in here as well. So I would say, I mean, Jim, the EU AI Act is also getting close to being finished. I think that we broadly see the AI Act and the NIST framework as being sort of complementary, both focused on risk management largely. Some of the um, recent general purpose AI amendments in the AI Act are a bit more, it's a bit harder to, to kind of understand how those would be implemented and we don't really think that you should apply the kind of high risk requirements in the AI Act to every general purpose algorithm. But I think putting that aside, the AI Act does very deliberately define what it means to be a high risk algorithm and, and how to manage those. Though I would say, and you know, Vincent, maybe you want to comment on this as well, those discussions are very much focused on on the machine learning algorithm side of this and not like the, the practical kind of like going through examples, you know, the NIST framework was done in collaboration with a lot of stakeholders, including Google, based on our own experience in assessing and managing risk. But as Vincent kind of alluded to, like thinking about 
we're still, I think, at an earlier stage in doing this in the robotics context and applying ML in the robotics context and an earlier stage around standardization in that space. And that's not to say that, I mean, I think there are a lot of constraints that we put a lot of constraints on what we are doing to make sure that they're very safe, but as they continue to progress, these, the, the policy conversations will evolve on that side too. One thing that we're seeing as a practitioner of robotics uh, research is that, you know, safety is really something that uh, is a a constraint in everything we do at every step of the way, right? And so it's not something that you think of the day you want to go out and sell a robot or sell a robotics technology. Oh, I need to think about safety, right? It's something that actually... We're collecting data, for example, on our robots, uh, and we try to be very efficient about our data collection. And those robots that do the data collection are operating near people. They're operating in an environment that's unconstrained because that's the kind of data that we want. And so the safety requirements that we have to impose on ourselves just within the lab are always front and center and sometimes dictate how we collect the data and what we do about it. So it's always very, very present as a concern. And in fact, very often managing safety becomes the first problem to tackle before we can even think of applying machine learning to um, a specific problem. So this is something that is, you know, in in this robotics research space is is very present and uh, will continue to be something that we devote a lot of attention to as a result. One of the things that I liked in the, the NIST framework was they said there's an implicit recognition that one of the risks is accidentally throttling innovation in this space. There's a couple lines in there that suggest that. What advice would you give to regulators to avoid doing that? Because there's now good data on how regulation can slow, damage, block innovation and technology. So what would your advice be there? What should they be looking at? Beyond say, we all want the things to be safe, of course. But we also don't want to lose the, the opportunity. At least I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the key piece here would be to, to not operate by saying, oh, there are all of these risks we can't even imagine, so we need to put a lot of restrictions on this technology, right? To, to like the key is having a risk management framework so that we can imagine those specific risks. And I think as Vincent was alluding to, like on the, on the safety side, and in the robotics space, it's actually, I think, much easier <laughs> to imagine many of these, right? Because you have the, this physical robot and it's very clear what the safety risks might be. And so maybe that is, I don't know what you would say, Vincent, but in some ways, you know, compared to a situation where the risks are a little bit more like removed from that immediate physical effect, it, it's perhaps some aspects of that conversation are perhaps even a bit more straightforward. But I think the key message is to not say, oh, this is scary. So let's just like only allow, like put restrictions on who can do it and how it can be done, um, but rather to think about like exact ways in which it could go wrong and then design those principles or 
or regulations to address those specific risks. One proxy here that is interesting to consider is the self-driving car industry and how that industry has developed, right? The there's two ways to approach risk and safety. You can take it from within in a sense that you need to certify every component of your system that it's within some parameters or uh, safety parameters with the assumption that you actually know what those components will be to begin with. Or, or you can go from without, right? Where you uh, don't necessarily put any constraints on what the system looks like, but you measure how in practice, in actual deployment, what's the mean time between failure? What's the mean time between critical failure? And that's the framework that has been deployed for the self-driving industry. They deploy, they, you know, they measure their, their, their performance in terms of the actual outcomes in the real world. And that has enabled them to sort of reason about the risk in a, in a way that was not really prescriptive of what kind of technologies were applied. And I think that's a very healthy way to not stifle development by saying, you know, you have to use this component or you have to use it in this manner, but to judge the outcomes based on you know, what actually happens in the field and keep a very high level of scrutiny and standard on those standards being met by the industry in general. Yeah, we did a project on self-driving cars where one of the companies was using San Francisco as a test bed. And I thought, I don't even like driving in San Francisco. So if this machine works there, you know, jeepers. But um, so what, when you think about this, what's your sort of mental timeline? I mean, how you've said a couple of times that we're further than people might think, but what, what would be a good timeline for people to think about and what are the steps along that timeline to actually get to this vision of a of a, a robot helper oh my uh, my my hit rate on making future prediction is extremely low we don't hold uh, we don't hold anybody to what they say <laughs> on here so don't worry about it. i i have i have a i i have a difficulty making any prediction the predictions i'm making for myself I want to, in three to five years time, I want to have answers to all the questions I'm asking today. And I think if we haven't really made meaningful progress to, in particular, the, the questions around manipulating objects in the real world, I would be terribly sad. Whether we'll uh, be there or not is, is an open question. I think what's interesting uh, is that a lot of the expectations in this um, space have been forged, uh, I think, in the eyes of the public through decades of sci-fi movies. And then um, also through very impressive demo videos of what robots can do when they're in a perfectly controlled environment. They usually and leave that part out. <laughs> right, right. And, the, you know, you, you, you remove you know, from the equation, all the hard work that has gone into really specializing the robots to the environment that it's operating in, which can be, you know, months and months of work, right? So I think the, the there is a gap of expectations here, uh, both just from the what can be done through special effects or what can be done through careful engineering compared to what can be viable and commercially deployed in the real world. 
and we're, we're trying to move the research community more towards providing artifacts that are a lot more faithful to where the reality is and set expectations right. Um, that said, um, you're also seeing that a lot of the logistics space is being really influenced strongly by automation today. And the automation that really starts involving manipulation tasks, uh, stowing, kidding, and things like this. And that I think is going to be becoming uh, more part of the reality of the world in, in the next few years at a much larger scale. So maybe just to build off that a little bit, we we already have industrial applications and it will be, that's where the growth will be for now. And consumer applications, what I would call consumer applications, uh, further down the road. Yes, I think so. The, the The demand for automation in the industrial space has really grown markedly, uh, particularly since COVID, and it doesn't show any signs of uh, slowing down. So I think there will be a lot of economic drivers that will mm -hmm. still be pushing industrial robotics. Um, and then demographic drivers. You sure. can find against demography, the future is very likely a future in which the uh, total number of people in the workforce will stop growing or shrink uh, in comparison to the number of people who uh, need the kind of uh, assistance that uh, automation can provide or will need the, the goods that industry can provide. So I don't think those trends are going to be reversed uh, anytime soon and will probably drive a lot of innovation as well. So this is the philosophy moment. One of the things I've always wondered about is, so RUR, you know, the check play from the 20s, that's the one where the word robot comes from. How much are we hampered by the sort of anthropomorphic expectations? I mean, you just, you can't escape it. And people don't have a good dividing line. It's sort of general public, and I'd say a lot of policymakers, between fictional depictions and the actual reality. That's why the video you guys did is sort of interesting. I mean, watching the thing take a minute to figure out whether to pick up a sponge or a bag of chips. Yeah, the anthropomorphic view of robots is a, there's a few sides to that coin, right? If you look at what robots have been, exist today in your home, they're called a dishwasher, a washing machine, <laughs> you know, at best a Roomba. They, they don't look anthropomorphic at all, right? And uh, and they're robots. They're really, uh, they exactly fit the definition of a robot. And so in practice, you know, the very specialized uh, robots have always kind of won. And uh, the, the vision of Rosie the robot as an anthropomorphic uh, robot has never really happened, yet it really captures people's imagination. There are good reasons to progressively consider closer to anthropomorphic form factors, because essentially the world we live in has been designed for humans, mm. right? And everything around us is designed for 
the kind of affordances that you have, you know, things you can reach books in your bookshelf and their books are the right form factor for human hands. Doors have handles that are designed for human hands and uh, they are the size of a human that can walk through them, right? So the, the human form factor is what everything is designed around. And so if you start thinking about a robot that does more than just one thing, fitting it to the human form factor and considering more of an anthropomorphic shape makes a lot of sense. It comes with a lot of challenges because, you know, for example, the first challenge for a robot is just balancing on legs if you really want your robot to have legs. And uh, people have been working on the problem for decades and they've maybe finally have decent answers to how to balance. But if your entire sort of research agenda or your entire industrial agenda relies on you having uh, a robot that can safely balance on two legs and not uh, fall over, not have pinch points at the joints because you want to keep it safe, that's putting a lot of pressure on everything else when you can just have a robot on wheels and that yeah. solves maybe 80% of the problem in a way that's cheaper, simpler, more efficient energetically. And so you probably want to have something that looks kind of a hybrid of you know what is practical to do and uh, what is anthropomorphic enough that it's compatible with the environment that you uh, are operating in. Yeah, this is why I like treads and some of the work that NASA has done on devices being able to traverse difficult terrain might be useful. I forget legs, it'll take forever, perhaps. Okay, final two questions. What are the challenges that you're working on now that you think are the next step in progress? The biggest challenge right now is that we're, we, we finally convinced ourselves that really going for those data-driven approaches to robotics is really the key to success. And the big challenge there is that it's relatively easy to collect large amounts of text data. You know, we have the web. It's relatively easy to get a lot of data for images or videos to learn image models or video models. Collecting data for robotics applications at scale is really, really challenging because if you want to really collect that data it's almost you almost have to solve the entire robotics problem in the first place before you can collect data on the problem. So there is a huge problem of bootstrapping yourself into an efficient way of doing data collection. So the big question for us is going to be how do we scale up data collection for robotics application or can we find other ways to do it without the same level of data intensity that traditional methods require? And can we find a shortcut? Are there other ways to think about the problem that would not force us into collecting that amount of data? So that, those are the big challenges uh, and that they're very core and fundamental that we need to really sort of think through and um, that uh, a lot of the research community is increasingly grappling with because a lot of people are now seeing that really those kinds of large data-driven AI approaches are the future of this space. Great. Kate, did you want to add anything to that? I guess I would just, I mean, I think that you've heard through this conversation that this work is at a, an early researchy stage. I think we, 
Google is working on a lot, doing a lot of work at this sort of research stage. And one sort of broad policy challenge we face now is how to think about when something becomes not fundamental research anymore and something that needs to be kind of handled in a different way. Policy-wise, I think there's a bit of a tendency to say like, we can imagine all of these potential future risks to our earlier conversation. And therefore, you know, we need to put in place a lot of controls. And, and I don't think we haven't seen that too much on the robotic side, but certainly we're seeing it on the AI side and try figuring out you know, how to navigate that and, and what, what really does make sense and what would stifle innovation. And that's, it's a tricky balance to strike in area AI, you know, we're having these conversations on quantum computing as well. We want to make sure that we stay competitive, but that we're also managing risks. So I, I think that that's on the kind of language model side of this work. That's a conversation that is happening now. And we'll, we can expect more of those conversations going forward as these technologies do progress. Yeah, I have a piece on uh, what it would be like for the Wright brothers if they invented airplanes now. And now we'd have to set up a committee to have principles and think about the potential risk. How much would it have slowed down the development of flight? But that's one that one's on the back burner. So don't don't look for it anytime <laughs> soon. Did we miss anything? Any final thoughts or words that you want to throw in? One thing I would add is that as a risk and as something that, that keeps me up at night is we're basically taking a lot of problems and turning them into computational problems. And the solutions that we have to those problems take a lot of compute. And I think this is relatively new to the robotics industry, for example, to really think about compute in lots of it as a first class problem to tackle. Uh, a lot of the, the previous approaches that people favored uh, were relatively, uh, comparatively a lot lightweight in compute. But I think in general, even for the world and anything that is starting to use AI more, compute is going to be a dominant factor for everything to be, to, to grow. There's going to be a lot of demands and uh, being able to have the right level of supply side to that equation, uh, I think is going to be an enormous challenge from the industry, for policy, for governments in general. How do we provide the right level of support for enabling the, the level of computation that um, is now basically becoming something that people use in their everyday lives? So maybe one recommendation for policymakers is think about how to expand compute resources that they're finite yes. and the demands on them are growing faster than the supply. And I think those conversations have started to happen, Jim, right? Like Stanford came up to recommend this national research cloud in the US mm -hmm. and there's this national AI research resource task force uh, that's been stood up to think about how to make both compute and data available to researchers and in particular to, to researchers outside of big tech because comparatively at Google, you know, th these are challenges even here, which is, you know, saying something, I guess, but um, as per an academic. Yeah. One challenge there in this respect for researchers is that for the last decade or so, 
you could get the state of the art in any field you were working in on your computer. Like you just had to buy a few GPUs and you could basically get to train a model that was state of the art and the best possible. That is no longer the case. The model has completely shifted to large models that only few institutions have the the resources to train right now and are trying to make accessible to researchers and are finding that they're very bottlenecked. So the risk is that we become more like, uh, you know, the, the high particle physics world where there is a very scarce resource that people have to rent time on. And that really sort of limits the velocity of innovation that can happen. If we can break that bottleneck and really sort of enable a lot more high compute resources to be available for everyone, we will speed up innovation in a tremendous way. That's probably a good note to conclude on. So let me thank you both for this conversation. We covered a lot of ground and I appreciate your taking the time. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.